Welcome to episode 81 of Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy. I know lots of you have been listening to these podcasts and you know that, but this might be someone who's listening to this for the first time. If you are, a big, a big welcome to, to the show. Uh, this is episode 81 and there's lots more fantastic episodes to listen to. We hope you enjoyed this one and we hope you then want to stay and get involved with the ones that have happened before, but also the, the incoming ones that we have upcoming over the next few weeks and months. Some exciting times on our side with the podcast. We are determined to continue bringing it through to you. We are looking at different ways that we can improve the podcast. So any feedback anybody has, I would be really grateful. You know, get in contact with me, dan at sototennis.com or find Soto Tennis on all social media platforms. And please do come to me. We're here to try and improve the experience for you guys. Continue to bring the best possible guests, insights, information, knowledge, entertainment for you guys. So that's that's our aim of the pod. In this episode, Nick Wheel. Nick Wheel is the LTA Head of Coach Education and Development. Nick has been in roles such as National Coach for many years. He's been the Davis Cup and still is the Davis Cup coach for the GB team and was part of that fantastic GB winning team a few years ago. And I think what you'll see with Nick is him being honest, genuine about the direction that he's trying to take things. You know, coach education maybe traditionally has been just about dropping a load of knowledge about the really academic side of that, which I think we know that British tennis coaches are good at. But Nick is all about making better tennis coaches, you know, and there's many different aspects to that. I think you'll enjoy this one. Uh, a big thank you to you all for the continued support. You have encouraged myself to really continue driving this forward. And for that, I thank you. Greatly appreciated. Please, like I say, get in touch, share the podcasts, rate and review. It really does make a big difference to, to getting this into the hands of many more people. I'm now going to pass you over to Nick Wheel. So Nick Wheel, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Morning, Dan. Good to uh, good to finally speak with you. I had you on my webinars uh, back in the first lockdown, so tables turned today. Absolutely, and I see. Is that a court I see, Nick? What's it's can't be called in the UK at this time of year. Surely not. <laughs> I'm layered up, Dan. Yep. And <laughs> um, great, great to have you on. A, li a little introduction. Firstly, as a player, an ATP high of two nine one back in the day. Um, I couldn't find it anywhere on the internet, but the king of British tours is surely something that would would have come up. Um, being in lots and lots of different roles had been very impactful in lots of ways on British tennis, Nick, and currently the LTA head of coach education and development. And I know you, I know you've listened to a couple of these podcasts, and I guess the the starting point that fascinates me, and I know a lot of listeners is 
how how did that passion start with you? Like I think, like most people of my generation, it, it started playing in clubs. Uh, my parents were players, and you know, just started that way. And you know, the, the sort of the club environment back then was yeah, it was brilliant. And, and there was a clear pathway. You played in your club. You, if you were any good, you then went to county training and started getting involved in county matches and into regional training and then national competition. And it, you know, it sort of just spiraled a little bit from there. But I guess that first. Yeah, that first point was just playing a lot with my parents and loving the club, you know, the club afternoons, going down there, hanging out there all day, playing, and then, okay, this is quite good fun. And, and, and you know, hitting against walls and, you know, hitting against the wall in my lounge all day, you know, that that's how it started for me. And I, not to give your age away too much, Wheeler, but I think you've got a little bit on me. So I don't, I don't really know your junior career because I came afterwards. So what were you a good junior? Were you with the international kind of exposure at an early age? How was your junior career? I was, I was, I would say an average national player, Dan. I, I probably was always just outside the top eight in my okay. age group. So you know, probably one of the best in my county and region. But, but never sort of latter stages of national championships, but always there. Um, and probably, you know, got better as I got to maybe 15, 16, 17, started to pick up and then started to maybe move into sort of top four in my age group. Um, and okay. it started to get a little bit more interesting then, but very little international exposure. You know, I had a couple of great, you know, trips with the, with the South region um, back in the day. But but I didn't play the big events internationally. And what are your what are your memories of tennis when you were when you were a junior? Well, I mean, this is the bit that you know you encourage young kids to start out on this journey now because you know I've just got so many great memories. You know, county yep. training, regional training, camps, trips. Um, you know, the, all the matches, the interactions. You know, friends that you still got. Um, it, you know the coaches along the way all the people that sort of impact your life in in lots of different ways and um you know it's it's what you're about you know that's what you did you played tennis you went to school you played tennis yeah you did a little bit of other stuff out there I played football I played cricket you know like you know most other people did back in the day and I think it's you know so important to to keep a broad lens on doing other sports at a younger age before it gets too serious um but it was just yeah it was just life you know that's what it was yeah, and it yeah. was brilliant because i think that's a bit like i'm i'm very passionate about us selling the sport of tennis in a more positive way you know i think we have to be really careful that people don't become cynical with the sport you know it's almost like okay you're, you're either top 100 or you failed and then, and then it, it kind of sinks around, and, and 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 all of a sudden we have coaches that are cynical, we have parents that are cynical, we have players that are cynical. Yet one of the things I've loved about this podcast is, and I can see it in people's faces, that that in general their face lights up when they talk about their junior careers, the the moments, the memories, the experiences, you know. And I think it is it's a massive thing that we've got to get across to parents and players at a young age. Look, we all know that it's it's the very very tip of the of the iceberg, isn't it? That make it to the top. We know that it's out there. Parents know it, players know it, coaches know it. But you know, the dream, the journey is so exciting. And whatever yeah. happens at the end, and most players 
will fail in terms of making it to top 100 in the world. You know, we, we, yep. we can't get away from those stats and facts. But just just going on that journey, the experiences you get, you know, so many successful careers would have would have come from trying to be an elite sports person, whatever sport that's in. And I think tennis is a brilliant sport for doing it. Yes, it's a bit more individual in nature, but there's also that team element as well. You go on trips. So, so you know, you, you do have this big group to be around. And you know, if, if you can come over barriers, if you can be resilient, if you can, you know, you lose most weeks, you know, if you can keep striving to improve, whatever level that maybe takes you to, the skills that you learn in life and, and, and the experiences you get, I, I think, you know, it's just worth every bit of pain. My my granddad, I now know, was a very wise man. I used to think he was a bit stupid, not not in 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 a bad way, because he always used to say to me, and at any family do we were ever at, he would say, "I'm the richest man in in Catchgate," and I'd be like, "Granddad, you've got like." You know, one toilet and you've got a toilet outside and you you know what you what you're talking about you know like the, you've got you've got nothing you know and he would like no i'm the richest man in catchgate and and it was all about it was all about how rich he was in people how rich he was in experiences you know and it was it was such a lovely message that it took me a while to get and and again if i go back to how rich i feel doing these podcasts people reaching out to me and probably one of the biggest things that's that I've really taken from from these podcasts is people feeding back to me saying it is so refreshing to see how many good decent people there are in tennis that are trying to do the right things and I think we sometimes lose that in this kind of crazy journey of we're, we're heading there and we're individual and we're on our own and screw Nick Wheel and screw Ian Bates. They, they should be giving us this and they're sitting on their backsides doing nothing. And, you know, what? and, and this, this kind of platform, I think, is giving people the opportunity to see that, that there's so many good, decent people in our sport and so many connections for life. You know, I don't know, I'm sure, I don't know if that's something you've reflected on over your years. Look, I mean, completely. I mean, look, going back to, to the job that you're doing on the podcast, I mean, you know, from my perspective and, and trying to educate, develop coaches, you know, it, it, it's just a brilliant tool. And, and you, you know, they listen in, they, they'll pick up two, three, four, five bits of great stuff from all the different coaches that you have on. You've got a wider audience of, as well of, of players, of, of fans, of parents that are just getting you know, hopefully all the passion that is in British tennis and, you know, yes, you're having overseas guests as well, but the majority are, are yep. people that have come through the British tennis system in, in different, different ways. And yeah, th there's so much passion there. And, and I think we all feel quite privileged to be working in the sport still because, you know, we all know people that are probably earning plenty more money than us, but maybe envy the fact that day to day we can do something that we genuinely, genuinely feel passionate about and love and you know when you talk to people that have got tennis in their blood they light up you know you have a conversation about coaching with Nigel Sears with Dave Samuel with Dave Felgate with Colin Beachy you know and I can name 2,000 yeah. coaches Mark Taylor you know they just light up it's, it's yeah, never yeah. a dull moment everyone wants to talk tennis and you know if we can channel that we you know we can do great things there are great things happening. Um, and yeah, that, that, that passion is out there. 
Well, I'm looking forward to getting into some of those bits as well on, on the coaches, Wheeler. But talking of your passion, one of my first memories of you as a player, I was at US College. I, I'd been playing in US College for a couple of years. I came back from US College and I was playing Nottingham British Tour. And I'd, I'd think I'd had a little injection of US College in me of just being a bit rowdy, a bit, a bit probably getting pumped up after every point. And there I was, you at the other end, Mr. British Tour taking all the British tours. And I remember us having a bit of an altercation on the court, um, which now I, on reflection, I'll put down to us both being very passionate and not quite knowing what to, what, what to say. But tell, tell us a little bit about the passion that you had in your professional career. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the Mr. British Tour bit is, you know, is something that I'm, you know, I'm not necessarily that proud of because it was, you know, I'd rather those British Tour wins were converted into, you know, wins for world ranking points when I look back now. And, you know, you talk about my career high being just inside top 300, but I actually think that was probably, you know, fake. It was a fake ranking. It was a bit of a bluff ranking because I didn't have it for that long. I was more like a good. 500 in the world player, but I had one good year where, you know, I had, I had some good results on grass and on the indoor hard courts, but I was never really of that level. Okay. Um, and, and I think deep down when I was, when I did get to top 300, I didn't necessarily believe I belonged there. Um, okay. So, so inevitably I, I dropped back out of that ranking and, you know, back into more the satellites as they were at the time and futures were just sort of coming in. But a little taste of Grand Slam qualifying and challenger levels and some tour qualifying and then to drop back out. Um, it, yeah, it was, okay, do, you know, can I go back through that again? And I don't think I loved the, the, you know, the journey of being that sort of satellite player pro as much as some did. But yeah. the the competitiveness in me, once I got on the match court, that was probably one of my strengths. You know, I, I wasn't the prettiest of players. I was, you know, my technique was pretty stiff and, you know, the players I take away, they'll always, you know, imitate me and, and you know, and, and I know it's not, it's not that pretty, but, uh, you know, tactically I sort of got it and, you know, and I fought, I fought pretty hard, not all the time. I, I look back now and, and, you know, I definitely could have been better in that area. I got tight at times. I tapped out at times. Um, but most of the time I was pretty competitive and, you know, that's why when, when my career started to change and I started to move into coaching, you know, I could still win. I still wanted to earn money out of playing tennis. I got such a buzz out of winning British tours because of the paycheck pretty much at the end of the day, just as much as I got a buzz out of going to Germany and playing team tennis or team tennis here. And if there was a world ranking tournament where it was an opportunity for money, then, you know, I, I, I was all in and it, that became more the driver. It was more of a, yeah. right, you know, this is my, I've got to make money now. You know, I, I need to pay a mortgage and start making a bit of a life for myself, but I'm not ready to put the tennis rackets down. And so that's what fueled the British tours. And it worked quite nicely with my life. I moved into coaching. I was doing all sorts of different stuff, you know, Monday to Wednesday, then British tour Thursday to Saturday, um, Sunday off, do it over and over again. And, and I loved it. And, and once I got on that court, yeah, I was, you know, it, I was tough to beat in British, British tours because I believed I could, you know, beat most players. And um, yeah, that sort of competitiveness shone through. But, you know, 
it wasn't always like that when I was in Turkey for four weeks, in Pakistan for yeah. four weeks. I, you know, I, I wasn't as resilient there as I was yeah. in the UK. And do you think that maybe is the flip side of having more competition? So obviously that's been a, a quite a hot topic that we've had on the podcast of, you know, everyone, obviously everyone's talking about Italy right now, but how, how we get more, more competitions in the UK to give people the opportunity to, to not have to travel and to be able to compete and make money. But is the flip side of that, that it almost make, could make some players too comfortable of just not pushing themselves out that comfort zone to, like you say, go and do your four weeks in Turkey, which is maybe the more real life of our global sport. That, that, that's the, the conversation that we always have. I think things were a bit different back then. I, I, I think you know, most players now, the culture's different now. Most players are tougher. Most players are happy to go away and travel. You know, traveling's a lot easier now than it was back then. You know, you've got your Netflix, you've got, you know, you, you're in touch with the world. It almost doesn't matter where you where you are. You know, back then it was, you know, you were, you're out there with your mates that were traveling that trip with you. Um, you know, not much money, you know, pretty crap hotel rooms, you know, a book and, you know, a, a draft set or, or whatever, a pack of cards. You know, that was that was a life. It's a bit very different. So I don't think that is as much as an issue now. I don't think players are comfortable. I think the the culture of British tennis is that, okay, you know, you work hard, you compete hard, you give yourself a chance. If you don't do that, it's almost frowned upon. So yep. I think right now we're in a great place to try and build on, you know, the, the competitive um, platform that, that we've got. And look, Italy, France, it's tough to compare because the cultures are different. You know, the, the federations yeah. don't fund all those tournaments. It would be brilliant if we had more of a culture here where private backers want to invest in putting more tournaments on that. That's what we need. How do we how yeah. do we get to that? Well, it's a bit of a culture shift, but absolutely, yeah. you know, the, the more competition, the better. Yeah, and also the outdoor thing, I think it, it does. It's something that I've certainly seen over here in Spain. If you enter a tournament in Spain, you get in it. Is is the jet is the kind of general culture? So, you'll have under fourteen tournaments in February that have one twenty eight qualies draws, <laughs> but it's it's run at a big club in Seville or Barcelona that that has fifteen sixteen outdoor clay courts, and and you're able you're able to do it. You know that's a very difficult thing to do in an indoor tennis center. You know certainly during the winter months. It's, that, that's always going to be a challenge for us, but I don't think it's necessarily an excuse. I think we can play outdoor tennis, you know, and we've sort of shown it now during lockdown where indoor centres have been closed. You know, right now, okay, we could go outside. You know, it's about, what nine degrees outside now. It's not raining. We go outside and play. A lot of the courts now, we've got a lot of sort of artificial clay courts in clubs. We've got you know new surfaces now, which are a bit more non-slip. They drain pretty well. So yeah. I think probably for nine months of the year, outdoor tennis is possible. Let's teach our kids to to play in the rain, in the cold. They've got skins now, you know, all, all of that stuff that didn't exist. Yeah. Wear a hat. As long as they're warm, um, you know, let's, let's get on with it. So yeah. I think we've got to try and get away from, you know, it, that's not an excuse. I think we can try and put on competition. It's just changing that mindset that it's actually, it's all right. It's all right to play outside in, in yeah. November, as long as it's not, you know, icy on the foot and it's torrential rain, thunderstorms, let's get out there and play. I'm sure you did that when you were younger. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, but it's not, you know, it's because we had to. You know, people do what they have to. I mean, yeah. if, if indoor centres stay closed for the next three months in this country, um, you know, which, which is not going to happen, and, and, and I really hope it doesn't happen, but people will play. They'll get outside yeah, and yeah. play. What are they going to do? Just put the rackets away for three months? Of course not. So, of course, we need indoor courts, and the more we can get, the better. But it's not a stopper in, in my book. I think there's a lot of clubs that are performance focused, that are doing a great job, that haven't got indoor courts, but because the coaching team is so invested and want to do a good job, want to give a great experience, want to um, keep players in the game playing. And, and to do that, you've got to improve them and you've got to make them enjoy it. You've got to give them b- the belief that this is a journey they want to go on. So I think it's more around the people sometimes than, than, than the facilities being the stopper. I love it, Wheeler. I'm sitting here... I want to work for you. That's that, and this is the the way you're coming across right now, which which is absolutely brilliant. And it hasn't always been the case, you know. And I think those that answer right there, and that positivity, and that let's take responsibility, let's get stuck in, let's do this, absolutely. And you know, and I think that has always been the feedback that I've had from players that have worked with you. And now that you're in a position that you're able to hopefully impact more coaches, you know, and I'm sure those messages are going to come through loud and clear, which we'll get into in a little bit when we talk about the kind of the coach education side of things. But that is a big takeaway message from this podcast. I want, I want to bring attention to it because that, that it's the exact right message. And, and like I say, I want to follow that. Look, Dan, I mean, you know, I work with a lot of people that are also as passionate as I am. You know, th- th- these are the conversations that we have. And that's people, you know, within the organization, within working for the LTA, working outside of the LTA. It's all we talk about. You know, we, we talk about how can things be better? You know, it, everything's always evolving. No one's got the magic answers all the time. But there's yeah. such a strong group of people with great experience and you know, and if you haven't got passion, then forget it. You know, don't don't try and be in this space. And that goes for every sport now. You know, if you're not live sleeping and breathing it, if it's not in your blood, you know, you you got to bring another you know a, a serious skill set to really. And, and yes, we need leaders that you know. And, and we've had performance directors. We've got a new one now in Michael, and we had Simon Timpson that don't come from tennis. They haven't got tennis in their blood, but they bring a whole different skill set that almost keeps us under control a little bit you know because you can't yeah. have you know a, a group a, a room full of passionate people it, there needs a level of governance now in sport it's so important yeah. and so of course you need different experts and and we can learn so much from other sports as well now too but yeah there, there, there's so much passion out there dan and and i'm certainly not the only one and and um you know when we all get together yeah good things can happen and what's the it brings me on to a question that jumps in my head What's the difference between leadership and management in your mind? It's a good question. I mean, uh, what's leadership? I mean, leadership is is a role model, is, is showing the way it's, um, you know, I guess dealing with the little bits and pieces that can detract from the experts delivering. Um, management, deploying people to do the best job that they possibly can, enable, enabling them to do the best job, you know, facilitating that. And I guess from an LTA perspective, there's there's both, isn't there? You know, there's leadership in terms of we're responsible for the key strategies in what's happening, but then the management in terms of facilitating 
the opportunities to for that to happen you know my my job in my role isn't to you know i haven't got direct control over the level of coaches but i can try and facilitate as many opportunities as as i can to support coaches to develop in those ways you know i, I think look, the, i think the more diverse skill set you've got at your disposal with personnel the better you know and, and you, you don't yeah. want everyone the same i mean you know when when i before i came to the lta and i, and I ran my squad at sutton um you know i had a coach working with me which was very different to me because not every yep. player is going to oh yeah you know i, I want to work with nick actually that's you know maybe he's a bit too much i want someone who's you know a bit more like yep. this a bit softer skills and so i was fortunate enough in the most successful times when we really got good improvement across the whole group of players was when you know another coach offered different skill set to what I offered and he had better impact on some players and I had better impact on some players and it works. So I think across organizations now, you've got a great opportunity to bring that diversity to, to support everything. And in terms of coaches and, and as we get into, I guess we'll end up jumping around a little bit between you being a coach of coaches and you as a coach of players because you've done so much and I'm sure maybe a coach of parents, you know, there's, there's all different, there's all different elements to it. One thing that hits me a little bit about tennis in general is the skill set of a good coach is that they they develop a player. And maybe, you know, they can they can develop a player, they can have passion for that, you know, they can they got a good eye, they can they can get their identity set, they can take them on this journey. However, coaching roles in general, unless you're working at the top, top, top end, wouldn't tend to pay as much as a management role. And what I've certainly seen over the years, and I'm going to use him as an example, and I'm happy if he hears this, and and I would challenge him to come on the podcast and tell me different if this is not the case, uh, Gary Norton. Gary Norton, for years and years, has developed tennis players to a national level, and then some that have gone on to an international level. Gary Norton's next step was to be put into a management role, <laughs> and Gary would probably admit this now himself, he struggles to manage himself, never mind managing another group of coaches, parents and everything that would go with that. And that seems to me to be a bit of a challenge in our industry of how you how you make your way up the ladder as a coach and not have to almost jump onto another ladder, which is a management ladder in order to almost move your career ahead. I don't know if that question makes sense or that statement. I think it, it, it yeah, it's so true, Dan. And you know, I know Gary well. I've worked closely with him. He's an all-in coach, and someone like that, you would want to keep coaching and producing players yeah. at the level. You wouldn't necessarily want, you know, Gary Norton in a, in a management type role. Now, the challenge always is: you're right, the attraction of bigger salaries and what that career path looks like. And you know, I very much see my role as also trying to facilitate this pathway this career pathway for performance coaches where you know i ask a lot of coaches where do you want to be in two to five years and very few of them know that you get so caught yeah. up in the moment don't you there's not really that clear career path you know there's this notion that to get paid more or to get the credibility and most performance coaches they want 
the recognition, the credibility more than the finance. That's what drives them, I think, in 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 my experience yeah. from talking with coaches. But you know, they feel that that's at the top end. That comes more at the top end. Whereas we've got coaches that are doing unbelievable jobs at earlier stages of the pathway, under 10, under 12, under 14. How do we give them better recognition? How do we give them opportunities to earn a bit more money, you know, outside of it? You know, we, we're trying to introduce a bit more mentoring now. I'm trying to use some really experienced coaches to mentor some of our coaches on the you know, on the on the level four, we've got a female coach engagement program now where we're looking at use. We are using a lot of our female senior female coaches as mentors for that. They can earn a bit more that way. You know, I'd, I'd love everyone to have more opportunities. Um, and but through the pathway, really recognizing yeah. that I would love to see more employed roles out there. You know, this is where I probably yep. envy the U.S. college system. You know, how many great jobs are there in universities and colleges? You know, so yep. many. You know, wouldn't it be great if we could build up the British university tennis system that, yeah, there's some areas that we're never going to compete with the U.S. on. But how good would it be if we had 20, 30, 40 great head coach roles, employed roles in university establishments that were really good roles, well paid, and and, and you need a pretty good CV for that. That is still coaching, still having an impact on British tennis. And, and if that can cascade down. So it's, it's a huge challenge. Um but I think we need to bring it to life. And it's one big goal of mine in my role is to try and bring that career pathway to life mm. and show, showcase it and, and where the coaches want to be. And hopefully, you know, we start to get specialist coaches that if you're the best under 10 coach in the country, you know, you're getting paid similar amounts to, you know, one of the best senior pro coaches. Now, yeah. of course, there's, there's always going to be that if you're working on the tour and you're linked to a bonus system, the opportunities to make more money is going to be there because it's professional sport. But in terms of basic pay, you know, that, that would be a nice bit to have that coaches don't feel that they've got to keep working at the, at, or, or move up and work at the higher end. Very good, Nick. I think to, to those listening as well that maybe don't have a strong background in tennis another one of one of the i guess my gripes with the industry and again this is on a global this is on a global term not not on a not on a british term most of us as tennis coaches including yourself and myself nick could make more money by probably coaching recreationally you know in in some rich part of the world which i guess if you take a sport like football basketball i would imagine most sports out there almost the wage and, and the remuneration for what you're doing tends to then be linked with that career progression as well so i think what tends to happen from again from my limited experience is some coaches go well why the more i work the less i get paid Whereas if I go and I just make myself comfortable here in a country club somewhere, I can churn out a few hours a week, don't have a whole lot of stress, and I'm making more money. And there's something that doesn't quite add up on that. I know we, I know we kind of accept it. We just kind of accept that's what it is in tennis. But I, I don't know if there's ever going to be a solution to that. There's a couple of ways of looking at that, Dan. You know, if that's if that's on your mindset and that's what you, you're inclined to do, then you probably shouldn't be working in the performance space. You know, you're probably not the right person to really develop players consistently and take them on that journey, invest 
everything you can in developing them as people as well as as well as tennis players there might be a period in your life where you need to come away for a bit maybe there is a five-year period and you know beach talks about it with having a young young family you know you, you have different phases well maybe there's a phase where you've got to move away and earn money for five years but if you're really really passionate about working in performance coaching you're going to move back in at some point and if you don't okay that's fine but maybe that's not for you or it was for you and then it isn't for you but you know yeah. use the phrase all in coaches we need all in coaches if you're not all in yeah. then you know you, there's someone else that can do the job better you know when we're looking at young coaches to develop i'm looking for that passion that spark that inclination um and because you know coaches can learn you, you surround them with the right people they can learn as long as you've got that base level you really want those coaches that are prepared to go on that journey and it's a 24 7 job and what drives you well what drives me right now dan is it is trying to okay ultimately i want our performance coaching community in Britain to be fulfilled, satisfied, feel cared for, feel respected, feel recognized. Now, I think if we can do that, there's going to be a, a stronger cohesion, sharing of information, everyone wanting to develop a little bit more, which in turn will increase the level. Um, but, but ultimately, that you know, I want it to be an industry that's respected. I want it to be an industry that you know, coaches, ex-players, players that may be good juniors in college, university, not sure if they want to go to pro coaching. They want to become part of this performance coaching community This and go on this journey. You know, that, that's what drives me. And has that changed over the years? Have your, have your drivers changed over the years? Have you always felt you want to have this kind of bigger impact on the sport? Well, the, I've been in this role now, you know, it still seems relatively, you know, early days, a, a year or so. Um, and, you know, when, when Simon Jones left uh, to go to Chelsea, um, and, and Simon's a good friend of mine, and I still keep in close contact with him. When I first got the news, I, I definitely didn't think, oh, I'm going to go for that role. You know, it wasn't on my mind. Yeah. And, I, you know, I was a coach, and, and I still see myself fundamentally as a coach. Yeah. And you know, I, I got my drive from trying to improve across the, you know, every result that comes in on Resultina for a British player, I'm on it. You know, you, you get a buzz from, and I still am probably slightly less invested now because I'm now looking at it more through a coach lens. So when the job came up, I definitely wasn't thinking oh, I need a change of direction. Um, and, and it was probably a conversation with Leon who, you know, it might've been his subtle way of telling me he didn't want me working for men's tennis anymore, but I like to think it was because he knew I was ready for that next challenge. He sort of got me thinking about it and what it might be. And the more I thought about it is actually, you know, the roles that we're doing anyway in, as national coaches is more working with coaches. It's more, um, performance advice, advising. We're not coaching players. Yes. I take trips and camps where it's a bit more hands-on, but we're still not coaching them. It's more you know, nurturing and then feeding back to the coaches and trying to get yeah. the best out of them on that trip to drive results. And I would live every result on trips, you know, and I miss that massively. Um, but yeah, when I started to think about it, you know, I thought, okay, that, you know, that really motivates me to now almost shift the focus to players getting better, to coaches getting better, but it's still end of the day, it's linked to players winning. 
but just a slightly different focus. So, you know, once I started getting into the mindset and exploring it, and then, you know, I was fortunate enough to be given that opportunity in the role. And um, yeah, I've, I've loved it. Because I guess your your scope for impact is much bigger now. <laughs> you know, you, 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 you help 50 coaches who coach 10 players each. Now you're actually helping a hell of a lot more players. Yeah, pot- yeah, potentially. That's a that's a nice way of looking at it. And and, and ultimately, we, we're all as a nation, and, and that's what it is. You know, I work for the performance team, and performance coach education and development is a part of that. As is men's tennis, women's tennis, the pathway, sports science, medicine, the wheelchair program. We're all on the same mission to get results. That's ultimately what we're going to be judged on. But at the same time, we can really put processes in place that. You know, I don't think we're necessarily responsible for results. We're responsible for trying to facilitate the best results. But it's the coaches that are doing the work and the centres that are doing the work that ultimately should get the recognition for that. We're just there to, to try and facilitate that. Wheeler, I'd love to take you into now almost focusing a little bit more on, I guess, being a coach directly to a player. And and, to, and I know you have, you've got a hell of a lot of experience in that. How much did the experience you have as a player and working with different coaches along the way impact you as a coach when you went into coaching? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think when you come from a playing background and you first go into coaching, I mean, personally, I, I I didn't think too much about how I'm going to be as a coach. It just sort of happened. And, and I was probably looking to get out of players what my own beliefs were as to what made me competitive as a player. Um, and, and, and I think when you first get into coaching, that's what you do. You take your own values. And like you say, working with different coaches along the way, what had worked for me, what coaches said, that would probably have then come out in my own coaching. Um, I think as you then grow with experience, you realize that, you know, that's, that's not the way, you know, there might be an element of that that always remains, but you've got to find your own way as a coach It's different. And so my, my development as a coach has probably been, you know, I've been fortunate to be around some great coaches, you know, my early days at Sutton, Brent Larkin was there at great success with the Aussies. Um, you know, spent a lot of time with with Louis Kaye, with Paul Anacone when he was in. Bob Brett was a huge influence on me, um, and 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 all of my mates, you know, that are around me, Trotters, Beach, Leon, that you, you know, you de- you develop and you grow, and, and and you know, you end up everyone with slightly different philosophies, but they're a bit of this, bit of that, um, and and I think that's the the thing that's really important. You know, you've got to be able to adapt your coaching to different players. You've got to have your beliefs, but you know you can't coach everyone the same way because how one player thinks and what their values and beliefs are in their background is different to somebody else. And I think that's a you know something you you realise as you get older. And I look back on certain players that I've coached, and yeah, of course, I think God, you know, if I had that player now, I'd have done it in a slightly different way. I'd have approached it in a different way. I would have understood that behaviour better. Not just, oh, well, in my mind, that's bad behavior. That's not going to cut it. You start to think a bit more outside the box. So I I think initially, yes, very influenced. And and over time, you know, try to try to get away from that. 
and what would you say, I guess, are your three main points around your own coaching philosophy? I mean, if you break down coaching into sort of like, you know, the, the knowledge, then sort of the, the skills. And so knowledge is like what to know. You know, you, you need to have, you need to know your stuff in coaching. You're going to be challenged by, by players all the time. And in my role, I'm going to be challenged by coaches. You need to know your stuff. And there's a lot of knowledge out there. But knowledge alone is, you know, doesn't mean anything. Then it's more, okay, what to do with that knowledge. That's the skills, isn't it, of, of coaching, how to skill develop players and knowing what to try and do at different times. And then the behaviours, sort of the how-to coach, you know, what to say, when to say it, right time, right place, right messaging, building beliefs in your players, those behaviours. So I think, you know, I, I probably now, and, and this the last 12 months in this new role has really probably helped me make sense of that a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and when I see coaches, and, and in, in my job also, you know, we, we, we can't be guilty of just giving knowledge, but then that knowledge not being transferable into great coaching. Yeah. And that's probably the influence I'm trying to have a bit on our more formal coaching qualifications. I think with our SPC course, our level four, there's brilliant knowledge there. We've got to make sure that that knowledge is used in the right way and at the right times and, it, and also influence the behaviours of the coaches so that they're better coaches at the end of it, not just more knowledgeable coaches. Knowledge can be dangerous. Yeah. You know, you, I, I ran a session yesterday on, on the attacking forehand, which was looking a bit more from a technical parameters point of view. And, you know, I don't want coaches coming off that call and, and then, you know, all of a sudden they're going to teach their, their players what they've seen. No, 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 no. This is just some stuff for your tool bag. Just maybe a few little extra bits that you yeah. might think at certain time is appropriate to add in and influences you. So I think they're the, yeah, they're the three things, you know, what, what you need to know, how you, you know, what to do, when to do it. And then the whole behaviors of how you are as a coach and, and building beliefs in your players. Have we been guilty in, in the UK of producing knowledgeable coaches that maybe don't quite know how to use that knowledge over the years, do you think? A lot of people have said that to me and, and some foreign coaches that have come in, that would be, you know, the lens that some of them have, have looked through. Yeah. Now, I, I see us having a nation of great coaches. I see so many great coaches out there. The conversations I have, yeah. you know, I've done a lot of Zooms, a lot of CPD over lockdown, really good conversations. And you're right, there's a, there's a lot of knowledge there. Now, I don't see all those coaches coach, so it's unfair of me to say if, if you know, they're as good on the coaching bit as the knowledge bit. But that's something that, you know, I want to make sure matches up. And yeah. potentially it doesn't. Maybe we have got great knowledge as coaches. I think our education system is seen pretty um, in seen in high regard worldwide. I mean, what if yeah. I talk to, you know, the big recruit recruiters, Orange Coach, they will say that other nations look at British coaches being very well educated in, in knowledge. But we've got to make sure that that knowledge is being put into the into the right forms and, and coaches yeah. are developing people as well as players because one thing I, I think this is podcast 81 or 82 wheeler so there's been a lot of conversations the last few months and one conversation i had with a couple of spanish coaches actually who who you're going to be doing some work with bruno up in sterling was was what was was one of them and 
what they said when we, we basically, we kind of tried to delve into some of the differences, the comparisons, not a England's, Britain's rubbish, Spain's great or Spain's rubbish, Britain's great. You know, it's just, I think it's a really fascinating subject to just, just compare, contrast. And the, the one thing that really stuck with me from that conversation was British juniors know lots of things about their tennis. So an example that they gave was, you know, you can call in the group of players after a, a, a drill. And one thing that really hit both of them is how knowledgeable the players were. They knew why they should go cross court. They knew all of these things. However, the Spanish players would have no idea on that, yet they would do it. And they would do it all the time. And it's and it's almost like what they were saying to me and this from the kind of the Spanish system in terms of everything that happened back in Barcelona 20, 25, 30 years ago. It was all it was all linked towards making players autonomously just do things and and just that's what happens. When the ball's there, you play high into that zone. When the ball whereas whereas they found the British players quite often knew that, which was which was amazing. However, I guess they were questioning the approach and how much maybe time is almost spent on giving that knowledge rather than sometimes players just need to do it. I think that's competition, Dan. And and, and that's the bit that, you know, how do you learn to be autonomous? You, you know, just by playing matches, by understanding different situations. You know, if you've got a player that doesn't compete as much as another player, well, but they're still playing as much tennis, well, there's probably maybe too much time where they're getting information and an information overload. You know, it, yeah. again, it, it's so dangerous. You, as a coach, you don't want to be saying too much. I mean, you know, okay, what my pet hates about watching a coaching session would be a coach that's focused on one thing and then something else happens and then they focus on that. And all of a sudden there's five things they're focusing on. The player's got no yeah. chance and they come off and, okay, maybe a couple of things get better, but will it then stick? But if you let them compete they're going to learn. Then there's less yep. time for maybe too much knowledge. So I think competition is absolutely key. I think the best coaches in clubs can arrange competition. It doesn't have to be traveling to Europe or traveling yep. two hours. You know, let's make it interactive. I'd love to see a, a, you know, a culture where, and, and I think the county system is really picking up again now. I think we've got great county yep. leads in place across all the counties you know, getting more into county competition, I think would be brilliant. Spiraling down to more club competition. You know, you can, there's a lot of great clubs in, you know, in pockets, yeah. in catchment areas. But how, you know, how can we facilitate that? Again, it's down to people. If people want to make that happen, if coaches want to make that yeah. happen, it will happen. Um, but but yeah. for me, you know, that's around, we want players competing. If they don't compete, you'll get what you've just described. Yeah. And I, I think absolutely competing, but also, and I think, and again, this is a compliment I would give you, Wheeler, whenever I've seen you coach, I think you do the simple things very well. And I, I would pick that up as one of your philosophies. Now, I, I might be wrong on that, but that would be certainly my kind of opinion on you. And the point that they were also making was sometimes they did basket drills and they did these really basic drills and, and actually they didn't they weren't sure why they just did it because a, a coach had told them that it's good and it worked and when you actually stop and think the reason that they're doing it is just to drill in 
that very basic repetition of pattern, that very basic repetition of of being able to whether it's break the sideline or play high into the backhand. And then you put that very basic understanding of what to do, when to do it into competition and you do it under pressure and everything that comes with it, all of a sudden you have a player that's pretty good at decision-making. You have a player that's, you, you know, whereas if we overload, overload constantly all the time, then oh, it's, it's, it becomes a bit too much. And I think that's why the Spanish system, in my opinion, has worked so well. Just very basic, get it done, put the work in, now go and play matches and see if you can do that now in a more pressurised situation and repeat. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, I, I think, you know, we've got to get the simple things right. Okay, you know, as coaches, we've also got to keep the players entertained in a way it's, there's got to be that enjoyment factor whereas why you know I think there's that need to be able to have different tools there some players will like re repetition and just doing the basics over and over and over again there's some players that aren't so again it's it's different but ultimately our game is around being able to keep the ball in the court you know so much around serve and return really really important but if you can't go deep in long rallies if you can't be resilient if you can't have a high rally tolerance with the with the appropriate speed and direction of the ball placement of the ball well you're not putting your your opponent under any pressure why do they need to go for the line on ball 3 because they know you're not going to last more than 5 6 shots anyway so ultimately that's what it comes back to so that ability to to repeat, 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 to not miss, to put the ball in the court. I, you know, I did a, a, a webinar with Tony Nadal recently, Dan, and, and you know that's the messaging that just came out. Everything was so so simple, and we've got to get yeah. that in place before the you know be, before the little bits. But I think the best coaches they do both. You know, they get the job done, they get the simple things done, but they've also got the little tools to spice it up sometimes and do the little bit extras and to keep the players stimulated, motivated, um, keep that fun element. So what's your opinion on the potential faddish headline stats that have kind of come into our game over the last couple of years? It's got almost everybody running to only do serve and return in their sessions. Well, that's the danger of stats, isn't it? You know, you know if they're just taken as they are literally, then they can be misconstrued in every way. You know, for me, stats have got a great place now because that's the world that we live in. You, you know, you can't watch a game of tennis without seeing them come up. So you have to embrace it. But the best coaches, in my opinion, use the stats to back up their coaching eye. You know, nothing, nothing replicates a co the, the coach's eye. That's the skill. That's what coaches have spent their life doing, watching tennis. Now, if those stats can back that up, we can sell the why a little bit better, I think, to players. And, you know, but I don't think it changes the face of coaching. If you really want to get into detail, you're working with, you know, uh, and I know this from some of the stuff that Trotters was doing with Cam Norrie, you know, you're looking at trying to win three or four more points in a certain situation, then, yeah, the stats can be really, really powerful because that can make a big difference over the over the course of a season if, if cam's you know winning more points on his slider serve down the juice for example because it's more accurate and there's clear stats to back that up and he can see the improvement and by seeing it in stats it builds belief in the player but for me it's it never replicates you know the, the coach's eye and the coach's feel for what needs to be done but on that wheeler just to challenge that a little bit if I guess we can look at it two ways. We can look at it as 
get the stat and then the skill is in how that's then interpreted within within out the the player that's in front of us you know so it might bring attention to something that we hadn't seen and then okay how do we interpret that how does that then fit into our our philosophy how the what the player's identity is how the player's winning and losing points or we can go well it's backing up the opinion as human beings are we not then maybe guilty of sometimes construing what what's in front of us in order to prove ourselves right yeah i mean it, it's a great debate this we had a you know round table with coaches recently talking about this we got another one on monday you know it's a hot topic you know how much data do we use in sport now you know does it you know, does it make a big difference? And every coach is slightly different. And again, I think it's, it's down to your own coaching style, how much you use. I don't think there's many coaches that don't use any of it. Some will yeah. use a lot of it. And and it's, I, I, I guess it's how you work, but also from a player's perspective, Dan, you know, some players love it and some players don't really want to know, but maybe the coach does want to know. So the coach is going to find a way of getting this information and filtering it back into the player. So absolutely. Can it give us an advantage? For sure. Can it also be a slight negative if overused? I think also. So what makes a good coach, in your opinion? Well, a good coach is, in my opinion, is someone that can develop players consistently over a long period of time. Different players, different styles, different levels. You know, they prove they can do it you know, multiple times. They've got a track record. You know, you, you, you give that coach eight players. Yeah, they're not all going to be become world beaters, but most of them are going to maximise their level. The coach is going to get the best out of them. So so what does a coach need to do that? that? Well, they've got to know the player. They'll coach them individually. They'll have their beliefs. They'll have their things that, okay, these are my staple things. These are my non-negotiables. And those non-negotiables get results and, and, and they improve players. But then also that skill to individually develop the players, to really understand each player as a person, understand their their beliefs, how they think, their, their real strengths, their weaknesses, get the player to, to open up about how they feel about things. I think a, a given now in coaching is that you've got to, you know, you know and I've talked about the message of this a lot, you've got to develop the person as well as the player. You know, that's a, that's a yeah. given. Um and, um, you know, then we've got this big element of developing the performer as well as the player. You know, as coaches, we've got accountability to do that. It's not just the S&C's job to, to develop the athlete. It's not the, the sports yeah. psych's job to develop the, you know, you know, the, the focus, the resilience. We've, we're primary, primarily responsible as coaches for developing performers. Yes, we can use interdisciplinary support to support us to do it but we, we're responsible for that so I think the best coaches really take responsibility for that they build beliefs in their players they 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 get the players hooked they get them wanting to come back for more but then they've got to improve them as well otherwise at some point they'll lose that belief very good and what are some of the common things that you see coaches almost do wrong that then Ultimately, because we all know lots of average coaches that maybe don't quite develop players, is there any kind of commonalities on that that you see happen? 
I see a lot of good coaches out there. Again, you know, one thing that I'd really love to get away from in the culture of coaching would be any sort of model-based coaching. Coaches yeah. teaching something because they think that that's what it looks like, or in their opinion, they like that. You know, I'd always come back to why. Why are you doing it? What do you want the ball to do the other end? So, you know, if, if, if a coach thinks that the player's forehand grip is a little bit too extreme, well, why? You know, is it, well, because they can't hit through the court well enough. Okay, well, let's set something up to yeah. see if they can do it. And that grip might change naturally without you even having a talk technique. But actually, by yeah. changing that grip, do you then take away the player's angle forehand, which is their bread and butter, and really gives them that competitive edge? So by changing one thing, you might then bring away the other. By making a player play bigger with more power, do you then change their game style, which doesn't match their personality? So... You know, take a Duminar, for example, you, you, you know, if, if he suddenly had a, you know, a laser forehand, an Edmund forehand, would you take away a lot of the qualities that he then brings and, and, and that competitive edge that he brings of all those things? So I think all that all, all that's got to be taken into consideration. But yeah, get away from model based model based coaching. Josh Ward, him an example of, of, of his his physical his physical capabilities didn't match his his personality so the physical capabilities that were screaming more high risk tennis high higher up the court is his his personality was not a risk taker taking personality you know and it's it, it, getting those things to match is not not always easy you know and i think sometimes as coaches we can bang our heads against a brick wall because we don't actually take the time to step back and and actually understand the bigger picture of the person I think I think the best coaches you know, are able to get the players to open up and be honest. You know, I, I, again, I look back to my journey as a player, and you know, I knew my forehand was pretty crap, but I never really yeah. admitted it, and I never really admitted yeah. what it was that I that I felt insecure about. I, I felt like I couldn't crack an egg on it. But yeah. I, I let coaches try and change it technically, more from a model perspective because all that made me feel a bit better. But I never really said, you know what, I just I need to be able to hit this thing hard. Teach me how to hit yeah. it hard. Or teach me how to finish yeah. from mid-court. Well, okay, give me the best drop shot in the world. Well, I, I never developed the best drop shot. I never learned how to play angles. Um, you know, I got tight. I got really tight at times. But that I never really opened up about that. I never admitted that, geez, I lost that match because I choked. And I, and I think back to matches now that playing from mm. big points, where, you know, maybe 5-3 up, 30-11 the third, and I choked. You know, I made a terrible yeah. decision. Went for an eight-second serve down the tee. You know, what are you doing? Uh, you know, but a good coach can really get the player to open up, really understand how they're feeling. And then you've got a starting point. Then you can start to build sure. those beliefs. You've experienced both sides is there any differences when you're working with players as a federation coach compared to working with players as 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 a private coach? And if so, what are those differences? There's there's two two sort of periods of my you know working life with the LTA. Dan, when I first came into the LTA, it was more of a centralised approach. So it was come in, yeah. there you go, there's your three four players, and off you go. Yeah. So. You know, I had a direct comparison as to what that was like working for the LTA and outside of the LTA because I was doing that on a bigger scale privately at Sutton. So 
you know, what's different? Okay, well, you've got a bigger budget. You know, you've only got four yep. players. You can really invest and, and you can pretty much do what you want. But, you know, in a, in a way, the pressure to produce and the pressure to get results is maybe more. But if, if you're an all-in coach, you know, that's natural. That's a given. You know, I'd like to think I wouldn't, yep. Paul Hutchins wouldn't have hired me if, you yep. know, that was going to change my motivation to produce plays. You know, I got just as much of a buzz out of, you know, getting a player to a, a to a U.S. college that they wanted to get to on a scholarship, as as I would yeah. have done, you know, a player winning a futures or you know improving their ranking, you know, to whatever. Um, so I think that's what's built in us. But it's a very privileged position to have as a federation coach. You you, you know you, you've got to have integrity. Um, I, I feel um, that because I've worked outside of the Federation as well, you know, I never see it as an us and them. I, I, I've got massive empathy for the challenges of working outside the, you know, not having the, the, the money available, the funding available to do what you want to do, the pressures of, you know, not working by the day rate, not having an employed salary coming in all the time. Um, and, you know, over the last 10, 12 years that I've been working, we, you know, we've moved away from that centralized approach and a little bit more of that hybrid model where we're funding and facilitating and then performance advising. So less of, you know, you could say in one way, less of an accountability, but by no means any less passionate and feeling the pressure to to yep. get results you know that's what we talk about all the time we're constantly trying to write what can we do better what you know living off every single result so inside the federation outside ultimately i think it's the same and and, and i think beach is a great example of that you know beach has, has worked in both now yeah and you haven't seen a change in colin beecher working outside the, the federation he's probably grown in certain ways and you know that that experience would have i think would have would have helped him and i've seen that but still ultimately the same coach that lives every single result just in yeah. with a you know or out and that same thing i suppose on i had james auckland on the podcast i think it was that was released a couple of days ago and he talked about there was two times and he hadn't realized this he almost reflected on this as he was as he was talking through the podcast it was almost like a bit of a counseling session he had two moments in his playing one when he was age 12 and one when he was age 20 where he went from i guess zero to hero and and went into the 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 fully funded system of, of being fully funded between the age of 12 and 14 and then again it happened between ages of 19 and 21 <clears throat> and on both occasions as he was reflecting he hardly won a match in those two-year periods you know it, it didn't it it, all, it didn't work for him and I, and I think we do see this quite a bit with players and, and in my opinion and please jump in and give your opinion on this one, one, because naturally, I think some players take their foot off the gas. I think professional coaches don't, you know, like like yourself, like Colin Beecher, because you're mature and you've got the, the drive and passion and you're doing it for the right reasons. And then a little bit of entitlement can come in, you know, which is natural, especially at, at younger ages. Or two, what probably happened to me on reflection, I then, I didn't deal with the pressure very well of, of being the person that now should do well, <laughs> you know, almost everyone's eyes are on you and you should do well. 
you know, and, and I, I just see that as such a massive challenge that's quite specific, I think, to British players, because I don't think it, there's as many federations globally that have so many eyes on them. I, I don't know if that's something that you that you see. And I guess the question is, how do we fund players in that way, yet stop the entitlement and still keep that kind of burning desire and passion to move in, in, in the right direction and for the right reasons? It's, it's, it's a big challenge, of course. I think the systems in place now... Um, are there to, to, to make sure that that doesn't happen as much. So longer funding agreements. So really yep. investing in a player and understanding that there might be a bad year or a couple of bad years. And as long as certain standards are kept to, you know, we're in it for the long haul. I think you see that now with our PSP funding with the national academies um, coming on board. I think selection processes are, um, you know, a very robust, there's a lot of detail that goes into them, a lot of scouting reports, a lot of data collection. And that's probably, you know, one way where it can inform us quite well, but also a lot of coaches eyes, um, you know, multiple eyes, multiple times on players. So, you know, you, you feel, and, and I've had many conversations with parents and probably been the toughest part of the job over the years to, to you know, to tell someone that you're, you know, your son hasn't been selected for this program and that has a financial impact. Yep. But being able to give reasons why, and of course, they're not going to like that. But if we can be clear as to the reasons why, then that helps. But hopefully also that selection policy does mean that, you know, we are selecting the players that are right at that moment. But it's also very fluid as well. So just because someone isn't selected one year, well, the following year, they, they, they may have improved as such or shown the qualities that were maybe missing and they are now ready. So we've got to get it right also in terms of, you know, funding a player when they're ready. Because if you fund a player when they're not ready, then I think that's the sort of stuff that can happen that, Oh my God! You know, I'm I'm now on this pedestal. They they got to believe that they're ready for that because, of course, they're they're going to be labelled in some way. I mean, that's natural. That's yeah. that's like in any sport. That's just you know a bit of a hierarchical thing, isn't it? And um, you know, really making sure that and support support with it. You know, goal setting along the way, clear plans as to what's expected. Um, you know, regular meetings to know whether they're on track or not on track and real and, and so when a player does maybe come off a program then it's a you know it's not a shock in a way yeah. and it's a transparent process so i think yeah it's a challenge but if we can get all those things right we can try and do it in the in the best way possible and, and prevent what you said you know can happen it's almost having a um I'm not sure we could justify giving that role to call someone the reframer, um, but maybe, maybe the, the maybe that's my role. Maybe that's how I contribute to British tennis. That you know, whoever if they do, because it, it's again time and time again, it it can almost work in their favour. Actually, and I think in what what was fascinating fascinating to me with James, and he hadn't really reflected on this until we talked about it, was actually he had reframed it as, right, I'm going to use this as my driving force now. you know. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of successful people in life do have that. And that's why I think sometimes the player being funded in some ways misses out on that little bit of fire or can 
because because things naturally just come a little bit little bit easier and and actually we know in this sport or to be successful in anything in life it's 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 having difficulties how you reframe that difficulty and almost use that as fuel for your fire to go right and we all need a bit of proving someone wrong in life as as something that that kind of pushes us through um and so it's almost yeah maybe that can be a role moving forward they, they, they lose their funding wheeler, pass them my number. I'll give them a half an hour little kind of fire and burning reframe chat and then kind of off you go. Off you go and crack on again, you know? Look, you see it, and, and that's almost what you want to happen, isn't it? I mean, Liam Brody's a good example. You know, Liam was on the PSP program, great guy, um, had a, you know, bad 12 months, ranking dropped a lot and, and, and fell away from that criteria. And it was a very on, honest conversation with Liam. And, you know, Liam's such a great guy and, and he sort of got it. It's still very tough. And we still try and wrap a lot of support around that. Yep. But, you know, he's gone away and, and yeah, he didn't pick it up straight away. But now you see that that fire and you, you're now going, OK. And, and, and hopefully we did get it completely wrong. But you also look back and think, well, if things didn't change, then maybe it you don't have that intervention. No one, no one's got a crystal ball. You know, it's sliding doors, isn't it? You don't know. You have to have re- robust processes so you can justify, be transparent, and and hold your hands up when you make mistakes. Dave Samuel, bonus facilitator. You know, that's you know that's his big shout. That's what he he talked about massively on the podcast. And I guess again, as that conversation molds. It does. It does definitely hit me that 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 way of doing funding also gets rid of a little bit of that as well. You know that ability to go well. Actually, you get what you deserve based on what you do, and and I think whenever there is an opinion on on thinking that this person deserves, there's always going to be negative emotion attached to that one way or another. Look, I mean, I, I think it's great that, that people like Dave have got opinions on things. And, you know, Dave's obviously, you know, his opinion will always be well respected and listened to. Um, I think from a funding perspective, you know, our job when we fund players is so they, there's not a blocker on what they can do. You know, it, it, so there isn't, if you go back to national academies, players that go into national academies, is giving them the opportunity to have a great education, the right level of training and travel with great coaching, sports science, sports medicine support. Now, some of them might choose that they don't need that. that you know, they, they can resource that themselves with you know a, a little bit of support. They don't need to go all in. But by, produ- by having those, for the right players at the right time, it gives them that opportunity. It's the same thing for PSP players. Now, you know, what Dave's suggesting, yeah, that could well fuel a more competitive environment and motivate coaches more. But it could also put some blockers on some players as well. So there's there's two sides to things. And also, Dan, it's an evolving world. You know, you have to set strategies. You can't just run, you know, programs for one to two years. But yeah. you have to do what's right at that time. But then also know that things can change. You know, we, we might have one year where we've got, you know, more players that are going to go into national academies than another year, but you can't change something drastically in sport, in elite sport, it's an ever-changing world. So we've got to be prepared yeah. to recognize that, I think, 
Um, yeah. and, and at different times, everyone's going to have different opinions. And, and can we take a bit of that? Can we take a bit of this? Can we keep talking? Can we keep evolving? Can we keep analyzing it, but not changing all the time? We've got to stick to the, the things yeah. that we think, you know what, this can make a difference. And again, there's no guarantees. But I, I think we, at the moment, we've got a funding system in place that doesn't stop anybody from yeah. getting what they need to try and be the best that they can be. And those players in that system are the ones that have shown the right attributes, what we consider to have the best chance. But that's forever changing. Well, my big take on it, Wheeler, is, and this is a, a strong message I'd like to get across to all players, all coaches, all parents. It's on, it's on you. It's on you. It starts with you. And it's like one of the first things I say to if I ever work with a, a player that's showing shown real promise, it's like we expect nothing from anybody. That's the starting point. And I think that's where it goes wrong. It's when people expect and 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 this is my bigger issue with like I'm a big believer that Wimbledon has a negative impact on on British tennis, and and that that hurts me saying that because Wimbledon and I've had the pleasure of playing there is just the most beautiful, amazing tournament. But what comes with that is a big pot of gold <laughs> that then people start to expect that well, because you've got this pot of gold, that should that should produce tennis players, and it doesn't. People. People produce tennis players, and and the own the the the, the person themselves produces themselves. And if the, if you can live by the rule that you will find your own way through this journey, and if you get a wild card, it's an absolute bonus. It's an absolute bonus. If you get five euros or ten euros or two thousand euros, it's an absolute bonus. <laughs> if you get a chance, which I've been lucky enough to do, to have a Nick Wheel volley and masterclass for an hour on the courts at NTC, then it's an absolute bonus, you know. And if you're able to get in that mindset that it's on you <laughs> as a coach, as a player, as a parent, and anything that comes your way is is a bonus then I think you're now equipped from a mindset point of view because actually I use Paul Job as the example all the time. You know, if you want it badly enough and you find a way to, to be good enough and get that through, you will open doors. You will open doors. You know, you'll open the door to, as in, as in Paul Job's case, Johnny Carmichael, unbelievable guy, saw this young guy come in and went, right, I'm going to coach you for free. <laughs> You know, then yeah. age 12, I, I've got a player at the academy right now who's very young, who I've seen something in them. I've seen something in the family. So I'm helping them completely. They're not paying any money to play tennis at my international tennis academy because I see it and they're giving back and giving value to me and how they are. And, and, and that would be my message to everyone. We get into these conversations and they're good conversations to have. Stop feeling sorry for yourself and take responsibility yourself. Danny, I mean, it's great messaging. Um, and, you know, we have our part to play by making good decisions and being transparent to support that. And, and yeah, that, that would be, that'd be brilliant, wouldn't it? If, if everyone is of that mindset, I mean, Paul Jubb, you, you bring him up. What a great story for British tennis. And everyone will be rooting for Jubby to maximise and be the best player that he can be. 
um, you know, so humble, so grateful. Uh, like you say, a coach, it was driven by a coach that also invested that time and that passion and that all in coach. And you, and, you know, and, and you hope that Johnny gets that recognition that he deserves from that as well. Coaching coaches. How's that different to coaching players? Um, well, ultimately, you're coaching coaches to get players better, um, and so, and you, in my experience, coaches sometimes want the answers. They'll ask, "Well, what do you think? What you know? What, what do you think of my player? What do you think of their forehand?" And I think it's quite dangerous for someone. Oh, they got to do this. They got to do that. Because we've all got opinions, haven't we? Oh, what, why has that coach not changed that forehand? Well, you don't know the history. Maybe that player's been working on that forehand for the last two years. They just need a six months. Just forget it. Just let it evolve. Let, let it happen. You don't know the backstory. So I think coaching the coaches is trying to get them to come up with the answers, trying to get them to explore their own philosophies, I guess, in a way. And, and you know, they're the ones that have got to deliver it. They're the ones that know their players better than you know you you know their players they know the backstory they they know the person they know the journey the long term vision and so i think if you can give them more tools if you can get them to think about different ways of maybe getting something out of the player you know i i love a coach that would say you know i just i just haven't found a way to get my player to fight for every every point yet rather than oh, my player just never fights you know they just can't fight for every point i haven't found a way yet to really trying to get them engaged in that that that's a coach that's inquisitive that feels that responsibility taking that responsibility and i i, I guess from a development perspective you, you're trying to nurture that and, and support them like that I like, I like that i like that a lot that's for me my own personal coaching i think that's that's something i can certainly take so i'm sure coaches listening can definitely take that and what's your vision for the coach education and development program at the lta i think we're, we're in a bit of an era now dan where um you know a lot of e-learning and lockdown has obviously you know brought that to life a little bit it's been less face-to-face -face contact with coaches i think giving more and more development opportunities and, and probably more, probably less formal education. I think the, the more informal, the discussions, the individual development programs, um, you know, we, we, we're trying to launch some of those now to target certain coaches. We're doing a big program with our regional player development uh, center coaches, our lead coaches, but also we've got a big female coach program because we know we need more female coaches working in performance um you know trying to get more like i talked about ex-players more of a player to coach um development program going so a bit more that way now we still need that education for sure you know we, we need coaches to go through and, and and have that knowledge and i think the level four is that gateway to really being a performance coach is there's a lot of stuff in there and one of your coaches is going through the course now so you'll be sort of close to it and and understand it um but you know they're quite they're not easy those courses we we can't make it too academically biased you know some coaches find that stuff easy some maybe find it more difficult it's not so natural for them i don't think coaching is you know the the, the ones that coaches that did well at school that got the a grades are necessarily the best coaches of course not so that's got to be reflected 
I think every coach learns slightly differently. Just getting coaches together and discussing can be a, such a powerful form of education, not this always the expert presenting, monkey see, monkey does. Learning from different, sharing experience, a safe place to give your thoughts and not be shouted down. Like, what's, what are they talking about? Well, let, let, let's listen. So that I, I think that's the, the space that I want to take it. We're going to develop a new level five course because a lot of the old level five content is now in our SPC performance level four. So what does that look like? You know, we've got an opportunity to really, you know, make something for the future, something that's right for now. You know, is it more producing more specialist coaches in different areas? You know, who wants to be the serving guru, you know, et cetera. That's, that's sort of my, where my mind's working. But loads of development opportunities. And are you, in your role, are you, because I've, I've, I've noticed you've used the terminology performance coaches a lot. Are you, are you in the performance side of coach education? Yes, and, and there is a development um, side as well, run by Merlin van der Braam, okay. who I work very closely with. And, and, but there's also a very, there's a gray area there. I mean, coaching's coaching at the end of the day. Now, my responsibility is for coaches that are you know, going through that pathway because levels one, two, and three, then it splits level four and five performance, level four and five club, and the different focus on you know what route you want to go as a coach. But there's also, there's a lot of coaches that work in both. You know, there are a lot of coaches that will do some performance coaching, but also they're working in a, in a club. So we've got to recognize that area. Now, you know, we're at a point now where we pretty much identified every coach that's working in a coaching position on the player pathway. Well, they're the coaches we really got to get give support to. But we've also got to give performance content to those that have got one foot in as well, because maybe they're, they're going to move in and they're also having a big influence on players. Then there's coaches that, yeah, they're, they're fully into club coaching development, very much hour by hour, do your hour, come off. We also need them because we've got to grow the sport also. But yeah, my end is very much based around more that performance strand of however many coaches that is. You know, it, it, we've got a depth chart of just over a thousand coaches that have got some foot in performance. But in terms of full time performance, it's probably closer to about 400, 450 real jobs in performance coaching. And how do we define a performance player? Well, we define it. And, and look, you know, this, you've got to have some sort of line in the sand. It's probably under yeah. 10 county standards. Okay. That's, that, that's our first starting point where we see it. So but we also know that, that can be a grey area as well, Dan, because some counties, the levels are different. So what being a county player in one county yeah. might not be there. So, you know, we have to respect that. And, but that's the sort of the first line. And then it would be, you know, starting to move up through that ranks. As you get older, it becomes more sort of national standard, doesn't yeah. it? As you go up and, and and it narrows a bit. But yeah, under 10 county county level would be what we would classify as that first point of performance. Because a pet peeve of mine is when I think coaches, well, we are, as people were driven by our egos and the amount of people that like, coaches I have dealings with over the years where it's like, no, no, just so you know, I'm a performance coach. I only, and it's like piss off. Just, you know, like just be be a good coach. And I, I love the terminology and I don't claim that it's mine, but I do use it a lot. Just be a good, be a performing coach, be a high performing coach, <laughs> no matter who you work with, you know? And it's like, and I, I completely get what you're saying. You have to draw the line in the sand and there has to be, 
some labeling of some sorts because there just has to be to have a to have a structure and a framework but that would be my big message to some coaches stop getting so het up on what you are <laughs> just try and become really good and really high performing at what you do whether that's coaching a, a mini red four-year-old who's never played tennis before or whether that's going on court with Andy Murray because you get the opportunity to try and help him for the day you know just yeah. you know try and perform to a really high level I totally agree, Dan. I mean, I think, you know, any coach that comes to me says, you know, what, what, you know, what's your advice? How do I get into coaching and where do I start is just to do as much as you possibly can, you know, yeah. do that, you know, school group in a school hall, 30 kids in a school hall, do that, you know, ladies morning doubles, at the, you know, advanced men's club doubles, work with your more performance player, do the whole, the whole spectrum, do as much as you can. Um, you know, I, I think, Look, good coaching is good coaching. What I would love to see also is, is, a, is a much a common language, a common approach to, to yep. coaching in, in Britain. Um, you know, we're trying to develop a, um, a framework called the performance coaching principles that we're starting to roll out. Look, nothing new, not this new big thing, but just trying to collaborate all the yeah. language that we've been using um, in performance coaching and, and identifying the big ticket items and, and just you know, be great to have a consistent language. Everyone talks about the Spanish way, the French way. You know, okay, you know, maybe we're not going to be a nation that has the British way, but it would be great that we got coaches that believe in the same things, yeah. not prescriptive. They develop their own philosophies and styles, but they believe in the big ticket items and they yeah. all do it in their own yeah. different ways. That'd be that'd be brilliant. I'd love to know what the French wears. <laughs> is that not does that not depend on which does that not depend on which day it is? <laughs> <laughs> one one uh, and a bit of a shout out to Mark Bullock, who he's been on the podcast. And one of the things me and Mark um discussed, you know, so he spends a lot of his time, you know, visually impaired tennis players, you know, wheelchair tennis players. That's where he spent all of his time. And we discussed how actually in order to become a coach, you should have to do a little bit of that as well. Because if you think about the create the creative skills and the and the other skills you have to develop to coach a blind player on the court or to coach a deaf player or to coach it's just phenomenal and and like and that's certainly one thing i feel quite blessed and it just it wasn't i didn't have this big kind of dream and it wasn't that well planned but i did ha genuinely have five years of coaching like people from you know one of my first ever tennis lessons um the next lesson the woman came with headphones on and it was and i said okay why did you have headphones she said oh you tried to coach me too much in the first lesson you know and i was all right and I learned my lesson there and then that everyone's got the different reasons for coming and I've got to try and get to know the person and understand what they needed to do, you know, but imagine that if everyone is part of the coaching course right now, today, we're going to try and improve these, these 10 blind tennis players. I mean, I wouldn't know where the hell to start. I've got so much admiration for Mark and, you know, the, the, his team. And he, he, by his own admission, talks about how much he's improved his communication skills, his ability to be patient, his ability to empathise, his ability to, to use different, different interventions. You know, all of these things that ultimately we, we need in our coaching at, at, at all levels. I, I agree, Dan, and I think that, the, you know, the, the ideal coaching journey is you do come through the levels and, you know, you learn that way. But realistically, that doesn't happen. You know, players will 
leave the tour and, and they'll get a job, you know, maybe on the tour and, and straight yeah. away. So they sort of skip that. And then five yeah. years on, they want to do something. But it's not appropriate to maybe go back and do do a level one and level two. Yes. So, that, so they miss that. So we've also got to find other ways. But yeah, I agree. As an ideal journey, that would be brilliant. Well, I'm going to put it out there, Wheeler. The, the new master's performance coach, I think there should be an afternoon working with visually impaired tennis players. Is okay, my, that's, I'll make a note. That's, that's, my, that's, my, that's my shout out. And hey, Mark, not that this was a business deal, but I want 50%, mate, if you get pulled in, yeah? Um, Wheeler, it's been it's been class. I, I could I could go on and I could go on and, and and to have the time for me personally to speak to you has been lovely. Um, you know, I've been fortunate to speak to you a couple of times during lockdown. Um, when I heard you took the role, gen- this is genuine. I thought this is fantastic for for British tennis and for coach education because I think that you will have. A, a different approach I think you'll go away from it being too academic and I think I could see I could really see you making this a more practicality way of working to let's let's develop our coaches I can see that coming through with the mentoring that you've got in place and hearing you talk today so a, a big thank you for coming on that no, no, I, I appreciate I appreciate your words Dan and, and look I- you know, you're you're playing a massive role in supporting me in my role. You know, you genuinely, you, you know, you, you, your podcasts are brilliant, and and that's the sort of tool that I want coaches to tap into and learn from. So uh, yeah, you're you're supporting that massively. Great. Now you don't get away without the quick fire wheeler. You ready? I'm ready. Forehand or backhand? Backhand. Serve or return? Return. Indoors or outdoors? <laughs> Indoors. Davis Cup or ATP Cup? Um, Old format Davis Cup. Your favourite Davis Cup story is the Davis Cup, as one of the Davis Cup coaches. Oh, favourite Davis Cup story. I think it it probably has to be when when we won in Ghent and Andy won that last tie and and Beach, bless him. And, And I think one of the best things about winning the Davis Cup was actually sharing it with you know, lifelong friends, you know, we're just a normal bunch of blokes, myself, Matt Little, Beach, you know, probably Louis, not so normal, pretty exceptional anyway, and, but but we were normal blokes and, and, and Beach was slightly ill that day of the final, of the last match of the final and he had to sit on the, in the stands, he, he wasn't on the bench, the doc sort of gave him his marching orders. So I remember winning it and we, we obviously rushed onto the court and, and, you know, congratulate Andy, but I was like, where's beach you know where's where's my mate i need to celebrate this with him so i was sort of looking for the beach come on the you know and then so he came on the court and we had a big hug and yeah it's probably my nicest moment very very special it's it's my goosebump moment i often get a goosebump moment on those podcasts and you've given me the goosebumps injury timeout or not um i mean yes injury timeout but you know in a, in a sportsmanlike way easier to manage than 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 it sounds uh, one rule change that you would have in tennis um ooh, trying to think i mean someone pinched the one i had the other day was i think dave said it limit the number of bounces before a serve i think that would be my one um no warm-up straight on you know anything that cuts time i think anything that makes it a little bit more punchy and your favourite quote? Oh, favourite quote. Um, 
Okay, Pro- probably the one I lived with for a few years was um, was 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 Bob Brett. You know, Bob Brett just always talked about you know everything. It, it, it's unconditional. You know, that was the one word he used to say to me: unconditional. This is everything you do. That's what you do. That's what he asked for in play. So unconditional was probably more of a, a word than a quote. But yeah, that's the one that comes to mind then. And the one you've used a lot on the podcast that I've picked up on is an all-in coach, which which I which I, I like, and that's I, I completely agree with that. I completely agree. It's not for everybody. It's not for this this crazy world isn't for everybody. But for us nutcases that have chosen yeah. chosen this route, that we know it very well. That's what it is. Yeah, and great. and who should our next guest be? Um. You haven't had Jeremy Bates on yet, have you? I think no. Jeremy would be great. Um, I think one of our younger female coaches, a Fran Lewis. She's uh, been on. Sab- She's been on. Fran's been on. Of course she has. Yeah, Fran has been on. Uh, Sabrina Federici. Okay. We can get Sabrina. I would love to get Sabrina um, on. She works at Bolton. Um, yeah. You've been called out, Sabrina. You've been called out, Jezza. Your time, your time, your time's up. Wheeler, thanks so much, man. It's been it's been brilliant to chat. So thank you for coming on. Dan, thoroughly enjoyed it. Great to talk to you as always, and keep up the good work. Thanks, mate. Thank, thank you, Chris. A big thank you for Nick coming on to the show, and I hope everybody enjoyed that. Yeah, my my big takeaways, my big takeaways from that. I said it at the start of the show, you know, I really do believe that Nick is coming in and yes, knowledge is an important part of being a tennis coach, but how do we get people to be better tennis coaches? You know, and ultimately for me, a tennis coach's job is to one, improve the tennis player faster than they would if they weren't having coaching, but also can you change that curve? You know, can you change the direction that that player's going in? Whether it's whether it's Caroline at the local club who who is just trying to play for the fourth team, can you speed that curve up and and help her level get to the point where she plays for the third team? You know, and I think there's there's so many different things that go into being a good coach, and Nick has that experience. He, he really is, and I, and I don't say this lightly. He's one of the best coaches that we have. You know, in Britain, he really is. I've spent time with Nick. He's he gets he gets on the call face with the players. He gets to know them. The feedback from the players is always fantastic, and he brings the knowledge that he has through in a very simplified way. You know, and and, I, and I'm excited for for the coach education system in the UK. You know, for him to really bring that through nice, nice and clearly, you know, and I already see it with the mentoring systems that are now being put in place. And I know it's not an easy task ahead, but I believe and I don't have to say this, but I do believe they've got the right guy for the job there. And I wish Nick every, every ounce of success. He's a, he's a good guy and he's he's a tennis guy. And I, and I, and I believe that he's going to do a fantastic job. In terms of Control the Controllables coming up, we have over the next few weeks, we have Alistair McCall, who many of you will know as a a fitness guru, a mindset coach. 
It's going to be a fantastic episode. And then a one for the diaries, a one to watch out for. We have an exclusive. We have Justin Gimmelstob. Justin Gimmelstob is, if you don't know Justin, Google him. Read up the story. He doesn't hold one thing back. I promise you it's not a one that you want to miss. It's going to be explosive. It's going to, it's going to rock the tennis world. And it was a, it was a big honour to speak to Justin. We're waiting to see exactly when it'll be released, but that'll be coming to you soon as well. And then we've got many more guests lined up. So keep keep listening, keep supporting. Like I said at the start of the show, get in touch. We're here. We want to get better. We're open-minded. We don't believe that we're the finished article by any stretch of the imagination. And we really do want to want to improve what the experience is for all of you. So please reach out and let us know. But until then, I'm Dan Keenan. My co-host is John McGann. We are Control the Controllables.